Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Can. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, You'll hear from one of the top sports television analysts in the business, a one-time Division I athlete who has found his way to the NFL in three different ways and is now a familiar voice and face in living rooms across the country. He was once a mainstay in the defensive backfield for the Tennessee Volunteers. His opportunity in the NFL was cut short, but that's where his impressive journey began a former assistant athletic director, a director at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, the first African-American tournament director on the PGA Tour, and into a television career that began with the Golf Channel and escalated quickly to an eventual seat as the lead analyst at the BCS College Football National Championship game. He became a mainstay at Fox, calling the NFL's biggest games, and now, It's a whole new team and a whole new network that he'll call home. So how does a career in college administration lead to calling the Super Bowl? And what's his tie to the video game industry? His name is Charles Davis. His inspiring story and this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Well, Charles, this is a thrill, a really good opportunity to chat with a good friend, a guy I respect so much, and um, I'm excited to dig into your success story, which we're going to do here during this podcast, so thanks very much for spending some time. Well, thanks for having me. The respect obviously works both ways, and this is a thrill to spend this time with you, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is uh, fun because we've got breaking news, okay? (laughs) Let's start with the Charles Davis breaking news gotta love social media don't you i mean you must love what recently happened when they just burst the bubble and put it all out there tell us about it well i'd say that one of the things about that breaking news and 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 social media is that sometimes it brings things to a head doesn't it some uh, plenty of things you don't want out there sometimes it just forces the hand or what have you but in this case it was the culmination of what was going on anyway and then there was breaking news that i was possibly leaving Fox Sports and going to CBS, uh, to CBS Sports to go and uh, be part of their, their NFL coverage. And it wasn't official, but it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty spot on. And that helped culminate things one way or the other. And, and yeah, I'm very excited about the possibility, not the possibility, the opportunity to go to CBS Sports now and, and, and continue my career. So this is pretty cool. So let's talk about the details. Um, What's being reported is you're going to go be the number two guy um, on the team with Ian Eagle. And how accurate is all that? That is accurate. That is definitely accurate. And and I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to elaborate too much just because I want to take up too much time. But there was an opening there with the number two team. Um, there was interest there from CBS Sports. Obviously, the interest was reciprocated by me. It's, it's really a, a flattering and an honor and a privilege obviously to have that chance and uh I love my time at Fox Sports believe me I love being there being with with Kevin Burkhart and 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 that team which was phenomenal a great run but things just worked out and you know I don't need to give a ton of details about it things just worked out and it seemed like the best move for me was to move to CBS Sports and uh I'm going to do that and not look back still at the NFL Network too right you're going to still be able to do that yeah, my, my understanding is that I still have that opportunity and if NFL Network continues to want me to work for them, I'll, I'll be happy to do so. So I just want to make sure that I understand. CBS did not want to elevate you above Tony Romo? It, can, you, can you believe that? I'm absolutely in shock, personally. I mean, you know, when you pay a man $18 million, you're, <laughs> you're obviously looking for someone to replace him before he even does the next game. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the Tony Romo contract is one that all of us, let's face it, it's going to be like 
if you're in the sports world and you heard the news that he was getting $18 million a year, you remember where you were when you heard that news. It's one of those types of, of news bulletins that came out. Mm-hmm. And as I keep telling people from my perspective on this thing, it was a perfect storm for him. He had put in fantastic work right from the right from day one. He had done something very few people do, which is assume a number one chair in the NFL as an analyst and be great from day one. That just that just never happens, right? So he blows that away. He's been there for a while. He's done a Super Bowl. He's been he's been terrific, and now he's got two two networks competing for his, you know his his work. Mm-hmm. They're bidding on him, and this is where the bidding ended up. Look, we're all jealous because we all want to be Tony Romo, all yeah. right? It's that simple. We all want to be him. So, so let's face it, as a broadcaster, you're jealous that way. But the other side of us, all you can do is sit back and applaud. Congratulations yeah. to him. Oh, he made yeah. it happen. He made it work. And here he is. And he got there by being great from day one. And, and Craig, I think you can speak to that pretty, cl- pretty clearly, having been in this business. How often do you get someone who makes that type of transition and is that good right from the right from the first day? It no just doubt. No it doubt. That's like Alex Rodriguez, right? Doing yeah. what he did for other players with a big, huge contract. That's like Tiger Woods elevating everybody else's career on the PGA Tour. He helps everybody by getting that contract. But the bottom line is he's really good at what he does. And now you get to go be a part of that team. So yeah, we'll get to Fox in just a second. We get to draft off of him a little bit, which is kind of cool. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you do. So – all right, you just talked about two networks competing like they did for Romo, but they did for you too. So take us through that, Charles. What's that like um, to, to be in the middle of a negotiation like that? Well, it's extremely flattering, first and foremost. The second part is there's a part of you that, that keeps thinking, really, that, that this is happening? Now, let's be frank about it. We just talked about Romo. It was nowhere like, you know, competing for Tony Romo. We all know that. I'm not about to put myself in that category. But both both sides wanted me to be a part of their networks, which is very nice. And I'm appreciative from both sides for that. It just at the end of the day, it turned out the better opportunity based on what both sides were telling me was good, was with CBS Sports. And I'm very happy to have that chance and, uh, and be able to join that team get to wear that uh, blazer with the patch yeah, the on it. Did you get blazer. that? I have not gotten it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. The last time I wore it, I was a sideline reporter for CBS sports during the NCAA basketball tournament in the early two thousands. So I've worn it before, but this is, this is going to feel pretty special in, indeed to be able to have it again. That's for sure. All right. Let me ask this question. We need to clear something up because I read the reports and there was the potential that you might be doing some golf. Now we're going to get into that later about your tie into golf, but is there any accuracy to that? Because if there is, I know you got to ask CBS for some master's tickets. I mean, we got to, we got to make sure you get that thing covered, but could you be doing golf? There's a, there's a possibility that is in there. Um, last time I did golf, I worked with you at, at golf channel. And then after that, I did um, the, uh, the first U S open that Fox sports did. I worked on that. And so now the possibility is there. It's listed. We'll see if it actually comes to fruition. That That's going to be up to CBS Sports more so than anything else. We'll just see. But just the idea that the possibility to be there to work on any of their golf events is really kind of cool itself. And, you know, as far as the Masters part, a good friend told me, if you don't ask, <laughs> you don't give anyone a chance to say yes. <laughs> So, you know, uh, yeah, why wouldn't I ask for a few tickets? Hey, maybe I'll get lucky and they could actually give them to me. We'll see. There you go. There you go. All right, let's ask you about that Fox situation because CBS is obviously an amazing opportunity. I know, you you know, the reports are saying a long-term deal, five years, all that stuff. But Fox was a long run for you. What did mm-hmm. Fox and the opportunity that you had there for many years do for your career? Darn near everything. I mean, truthfully, Craig, um, I've been writing thank you notes to people from Fox in my past who, who brought me over, a man by the name of Bill Brown, the deuce, who, who pushed for me to be looked at. Ed Gorin and, and David Hill ultimately decided to hire me for their BCS coverage because, remember, Fox got the BCS. But at that time, Fox didn't have college football. You know, they didn't have any of the big leagues or anything like that. So to do the BCS, in a sense, we would do an entire season of no Fox football 
And then come BCS time, we'd orbit in and do the BCS. So it was a little bit of a different deal in how it went down, but that gave me the opportunity. And the funny part is I got the phone call telling me I would be part of that after you and I had taped a show <laughs> at the golf channel. I literally walked outside and got a phone call on my way somewhere else. And that's when I found out I was going to be joining Fox. And that was 2006 and have been there since then. So it was a 14-year run and a tremendous run. But those are the people that, that brought me in. Bill Brown, you know, Ed Gorin, one of the great legends in the business who, who had started at CBS. Uh, David Hill, who had essentially started Fox Sports. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is phenomenal to, to look back and realize these were the people that brought me in. And then uh, during my time there, a man by the name of Jacob Ullman, who I, you know, was there for the entirety of my run and helped, helped nurture my career along the way. So to be able to be a part of that and, and, and to go college and pro, you know, to get opportunities, you know, look, you know, from the time David Hill left and Eric Shanks took over, I still had opportunities there. Uh, it meant everything. It absolutely did. One final CBS thing. I mean, if you think of the history, CBS and the NFL go way back before Fox, right? Uh, yeah. Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire, right? Remember the old days and stuff like that. And now, now you're a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to believe, isn't it? Because I remember, probably it's going to sound blasphemous. I remember being in church and my dad putting an elbow in my side saying, man, hope the preacher hurries up here. We got to get home and watch, watch you know, the NFL today. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Brent Musburger, mm -hmm. Jimmy the Greek, Irv Cross, Phyllis George, later Jane Kennedy. That was appointment viewing. That was must-see television. That was Brent Musburger opening up the show, and you'd hear that iconic voice of, here, of his you're looking live. And you remember how they do that whip around, Craig, of every stadium that, where there was going to be a game that day? Oh, yeah. And, and he would tell you what was going on. And I was too young to understand it at the time. I think that, you know, I don't know, I don't know where you were in that and when you figured it out. But as we got older and then we realized or someone clued us in, and for me it was years down the road. But you remember, you're looking live at Lambeau Field in Green Bay where the gusts of wind are blowing up to 30 miles per hour left to right as you see it on the screen. <laughs> the snow is coming down, and he would give you the whole description. And then he'd go, and now we're in Chicago. There's Soldier Field, and it's 15 degrees. The wind chill, and boy, it's a footing's going to be tough for the receivers. I had no idea he was talking to the betters. He was telling the gamblers what the conditions were before you got your last bet in on game day. <laughs> and so it was one of the most, it was one of the most incredible things when you look back on it. And if you ever watch any of the clips in the videos, he was phenomenal in doing it. Never mentioned the word gambling, never mentioned betting. Jimmy the Greek handled that side of it for them. But when he laid that out and you went on that full whip around, before you put your last bet in, you knew what the conditions were that day. And he might actually drop in whether a player, you know, whether the hamstring had healed or not, or, you know, he's going to try and give it a go, but we're not sure what we're going to get today. That would help them as well. So it was one of the coolest things ever when you look back. Never mentioned it, never touched it. The league couldn't say anything about it. And Brett Musburger with that great voice letting us know. Oh, yeah. As a young kid, I used to sit in my room with my own microphone going, you are looking live. I mean, everybody everybody did that. So Everyone did that. Proud that of you. Cool. Really great opportunity for you. We're going we're gonna to get into your whole background story here in just a moment. But as you've had time over the last you know few days, week, whatever, sitting around with your family during this pandemic and so forth. And, and the negotiation went on and, and then the news breaks via social media, as I said, have you ever just sat there, maybe said to your wife or your kids or whatever, wow. I mean, seriously, guys, wow. The life that I have stumbled into. I love that descriptor, stumbled into, how fortunate are we? This is amazing. Yeah, all that has come through. And one overarching thing, too, because you mentioned it in there, Craig, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of, and this isn't being Brent Musburger and, and, and extra hyperbole. This is just real. We're all fighting for our lives right now. We're all fighting to stay healthy. We're all fighting and hoping that 
others that we know, loved ones, are not affected by this? And how about the first responders out there trying to help all of us, putting their lives on the line with everything that's going? So here we are in the middle of all this, which is really important. And this comes through. Yes, we're very happy. Yes, we're very fortunate. But you almost feel a little bit off, if you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. Craig, because mm -hmm. this isn't what's important right now. Yes, it's important for our family. It's important for our career. But what's going on in the world, okay, this is fun, but let's temper it a little bit. We're not going to go running up and down the street, you know, hey, yeah. because there's a lot else going on. We just are, consider ourselves extremely fortunate during this time frame that something like this would come to fruition. You just talked about the gambling aspect and the betting. If you're a betting man, are you actually in a booth wearing the CBS blazer with the patch this fall calling NFL football? I think we're all realists about the whole thing. I think we're also optimists. I'm going to say yes, but we also understand how it's going. I mean, look, when the whole thing first started, I'll, I'll admit it. I had no idea it was going to be as big as it is what it is. I thought maybe it might be a, a certain amount of time and we get right back to it because this is something we've never confronted before. So I've, I've been very, how would you say it, Craig, very open about, not holding people to how they felt in the beginning because in the beginning we just didn't really know now we really know we'll see and and, you, and look the leagues are look all the leagues are, are doing contingencies right now do we push it you know i think i've heard college football now talking about doing spring of next year and then coming back and doing the fall you know that sort of a deal so i think all the leagues have to be involved and have to talk about it but i'm going to be the optimist and say that we're going to find a way to play this fall. Are you a guy who's comfortable, honestly comfortable sharing and telling your story? Because that's what I'm about to dig into. I think I'm fairly comfortable with it. I think that I often think to myself, one, why would anyone care about my story? And two, while I'm giving it, is it coming across the way I hope it should be? Which is just simply my story, not, hey, look at me. Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of the, the only trepidation I really have about it. Well, I say that because your story is actually being told so much more. I mean, if you Google Charles Davis now, not that it didn't come up before, but now so much comes up because of all the things you're doing and the profile that you now have within sports, Fox, NFL, and so many other things. So tell me this, how many times a year do you pinch yourself? Ooh, that's a great one. I would tell you, Craig, that five years ago, mm -hmm. I did it more. I can't remember the last time I have because with social media, people come to you, quote unquote, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. So I don't really go and, and, and find mine anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Funny story about 10 years ago, I guess it was, my daughter was with her friends and I guess she was feeling like her dad was kind of a big deal. So she, <laughs> so, so she Googled me. That was what was commonly known as a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> what, what came rushing back and heard the girls not suitable for home and not suitable for, for air. And then she found out right then and there that not everybody loves your dad. That's how it works. Yeah, I don't know about that. A lot of people, a lot of people love you and they certainly respect you. It's a year round deal, though. And I don't think everybody really truly understands that. It's not just a slate of games in the fall, you know, where we see you on TV calling the NFL in the fall, the winter months, whatever it might be. Um, do you wake up feeling year round, oh man? I am so busy and I got to get doing this and you feel like you're never ahead. Great question answers. Yes. I do feel like that all the time. And I'm sure you have the same feelings and thoughts and, and processes because mm -hmm. of what you do and, and how you go about your business. Those are, I would guess that similar to me, there's times when you have to almost force yourself to say, hold it on a second. This is, I've got to relax a little bit. I, I can't go 24 seven on this. This is my time to retool, refuel, recharge all of those things. But yes, every day I wake up thinking about how I can get better mm -hmm. because I always feel like, you know, <laughs> as my father used to tell me all the time, Hey dude, you can get replaced even when you're winning. 
So you better make sure you get up every day ready to go. There's an expiration date for all of us. Every you know, one of them. I mean, we are all replaceable. And I think people need to realize that and try to figure out how they can get better, what they can add, what their new value is, how they can update themselves, all that sort of stuff. And you've done that so well over the years, which we're going to get into. But you just mentioned your dad. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, okay. Charles Davis. um, telling everybody here all of our listeners what charles davis the little kid was like like were you the kid that that owned the block in your neighborhood what was little charles davis like i, I was part of a pretty good block i grew up uh, i was born in elizabeth in tennessee and my parents moved to new paltz new york when i was two and the block i grew up in was terrific great people great kids people that I'm still friends with today for the most part. And, and that's, you know, that's not often something you say, but it was a town of less than 3000 people. So in a lot of ways we had that little Mayberry RFD type of thing going, <laughs> but we also had a college campus in the middle of town, the state university of New York system, the SUNY system, New Paltz state. So you had a lot of things swirling around my little Berg, but boy, was it terrific. I participated in everything. I was a jock from day one. My dad was a high school teacher and coach and then coached some uh, junior college and division three basketball as well. Wow. So I grew up around all that. In a lot of ways, my babysitters were his fields and gyms. Hmm. And my mother was a full participant in all that as well. So yeah, I was that guy. I was a competitor from day one, overly so in a lot of ways. I was that kid that when my team lost, I was crying and furious. And so my parents had to get that coached out of me a little bit. But I hope I kept some of that competitive edge along the way. I was just unsportsmanlike at that age. You were? And, and, that, had to go, and that had to go. But that's who I was as a kid. And, and it really shaped me and developed me into being the jock that I am today and still working in athletics. You got a whipping when you were a kid, unsportsmanlike conduct? Woo! Let me tell you something. My parents, I will I will, I will give them this, the 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 – the threat was always there. Mm -hmm. I don't ever remember my parents putting their hands on me that way. But uh, like the old Chris Rock line, you know, I never hit, but boy, they could they could shake the heck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. And you know what? You, you talk about that, like playing all the sports as a kid. And I was the same way. Remember the days? I mean, we'd be out in the middle of the street playing baseball or wiffle ball or softball, or we'd be at the local park playing basketball and running until dark, you know, flag football, whatever it was. So there isn't that anymore. Don't you, don't you think we need that more in society? Please bring it back and please bring it back fast. And, and it sounds to me like we had some similar upbringing, you know, the group of kids that you ran with and the whole deal. And I remember summer vacations, you would get up in the morning, go hang out with your, with your friends, and you probably wouldn't see your family until dinner or maybe a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point in our neighborhood where the parents got together, they all had whistles <laughs> and they all had different whistle codes for, your, for each individual kid. So if you heard three long ones, that meant it was Terry's parents. If you heard two short ones, it was Lisa's parents. <laughs> and right on down the line, so you knew when it was time to come home, but you usually didn't hear that whistle until dusk. And I know that it's a different time, a different society. I understand why parents are the way they are. But I did read a paper about three years ago where it said crime hasn't really changed appreciably since the time you and I were kids, Craig. But the reporting of the crime has, and that scared us big time as a society. And yeah, I miss that. I miss where kids go out and kind of do things on their own because now it almost feels like if it's not organized, it's not going to get done. Yeah. Were you legit at all sports? You said you were an athlete and all that. And I know, obviously, you found your way to college football, which we'll get to. But like, how good were you? Was football the, the sport or did you have other options? I did. I did. Basketball, definitely. Um, actually had some some possibilities of being a D1 basketball player, but mm. football was the biggest thing going. At one point while I was at Tennessee playing football, I joined the baseball team as well. I had a chance to play baseball and shoulder surgery ended up knocking that knocking out that dream. But football came through the biggest, but I would have had options in three different sports if I had chose to chose chose to pursue them. But the crazy part is in my little town, I keep coming back to it. And I don't, I hope my, my people at home take it the right way. I love New Paltz, New York. I don't want to be from anywhere else, but you don't get a lot of D1 athletes traipsing through. 
And in fact, we had never had one at my high school until I came through for football. And I'm talking about, I'm going to leave it at football. All mm -hmm. right. I was the first one in my high school to be a D1 athlete. And that was 1982. So it's not like it's that type of a place. So even during that time, Craig, I wasn't sure I was a D1 football player because I didn't have any examples to point to. Yeah. You found your way to Tennessee. I mean, you're a Vol. I can yeah. see, right? I can see. Um, why? Why Tennessee? Because because that was also part of your roots or because you just wanted to wear the, the orange and white? It, it was. It was part of my roots. My mom's from Elizabethan, which is East Tennessee. That's the, the what they call the Tri-Counties area. Mm -hmm. uh, Bristol, Kingsport, Johnson City. Steve Spurrier is from Johnson City. Science Hill High School, all right, back there. So right in that area, you know, plenty of Tennessee, obviously, even though Spurrier went off and played at Florida because they actually threw the football around. Tennessee was running <laughs> single wing at the time. My mom from there, my dad from West Virginia, we went back south every summer. But in 1973 or 74, I think it might have been 74, season opener, Condridge Holloway appeared on my screen, the quarterback at Tennessee. And I was young, but even I realized, hold on a second, is that a black quarterback? Because you just didn't see black quarterbacks in 1974. Uh -huh. It just almost was unheard of, let alone at a Southern school. And there he was, and they played UCLA in the season opener. He played really well, got hurt, came back, ended up tying the game, 17-17 tie. And I told my dad and my mom that day that, hey, I'm going to go to Tennessee and play football one day. And I'm sure my dad was he kind of mumbled something behind the newspaper. Okay, whatever. And sure enough, I was lucky enough to have that opportunity later. Mm -hmm. But he was my hero. Condridge Holloway, their quarterback, the Artful Dodgers, they called him. And the funny part is, Craig, I went to Tennessee fueled by Condridge Holloway, but I never got to meet my hero until my college career was over. Wow. Because he was playing up in Canada. And you know, the Canadian schedule is summertime. They mm -hmm. start in the summer mm -hmm. and finish at Thanksgiving. He was always gone. I never got to meet him until my career was over. And then when I finally met him, I was like, you're the reason I went to Tennessee. And he said, I know people have told me I've heard this story. So that was pretty cool. And to this day, I'm able to call him a friend, which is really neat for me. But boy, what a story he was going to Tennessee, playing quarterback at a time. You just didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was special. And I became a ball. I wore a number seven, which was his number, you know, around the, around the yard, playing pickup games, all that nonsense. And then I realized my dream playing at Tennessee where he had played. Well, Philip Fulmer had a pretty good African-American quarterback as well during the he day. He did. Won yeah. a national title with him. T. Yeah. Martin. T. Martin. T. Martin was good. He was really good. So, all right, let, let's talk a little bit about your career. And I know that in, in college, you were good, okay? You don't end up in the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame, which just happened for you last year. Congratulations, by the way, on that. And I know part of that is your career and where you've gone and what you've done and who you've impacted, but you had a pretty good college career. Yeah, I was fortunate enough. I was able to – I redshirted my first year at Tennessee, and that's when I found out what it was really like to be a Division One player. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I don't know if I'm good enough. Went through some bumps, went through a number of, of, of trials and tribulations that you would have at the age of 17, and – thought about transferring all of those things. Cause I was like, am I even good enough to be here? Was able to stick it out with some good encouragement from my head coach, Johnny majors and a few others and competed for a job that spring and came back and, and became a starter that fall and became a four year starter. So fortunate enough to have a good career, not great because great. And you know, you end up in the NFL or at least have a really good shot at it. I went undrafted and Craig, I went undrafted. At a time, there were 12 rounds. So it's not like not like I went undrafted now where there's just seven. I mean, it was a 12-round draft. I had shoulder issues in college. That might have contributed to it. Lack of speed, all those things. But as far as playing college football, I would agree. I was a good player. Uh, will I go down as one of the all-time greats? No. But I was good enough to be a four-year starter in the SEC, and I'm proud of that. And yeah. then I had a, a cup of coffee with the uh, Cowboys as a, a tryout. And I like to say it was really decaf and probably about a splash. <laughs> and I got cut and then I had to start working for a living. But had a good, fun college career. Won one SEC championship with my teammates in 1985. 
went to the Sugar Bowl, beat Miami, and that was a powerhouse Miami mm-hmm. team. And my colleague at NFL Network, Michael Irvin, was a starting receiver on that. So anytime Michael started chirping every now and then, I'd remind him, I, I played on a team that beat you, Michael, and that drives him crazy. Did that, did that crush you to go undrafted? I mean, you were an SEC guy. You had an interception that was huge. You yeah. beat Alabama. I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. You were at an SEC school undrafted? That had to hurt. Oh, it did. It did. And I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it. I was depressed for a few days. I never expected to go at the top end of the draft, Craig. I really thought my sweet spot was round seven through 12. And I thought that's, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. And truthfully, for ego purposes, I wanted to be drafted. I wanted to tell people I got drafted into Mm -hmm, the NFL and mm -hmm. have an opportunity. It didn't happen and it hurt. And I kind of retreated for a while, hit out my apartment, drove home to New York to hang up my parents and cry on their shoulder. I did all (laughs) all those things and then had to bounce back and realize why I'd gone to college, what I'd worked for. But anyone who tells you that they just adjust easily, I don't think they're telling you the truth Mm -hmm. because my moment of truth was I went back to Tennessee to grad school and I was working in the athletic department and getting my finishing up my master's that first Saturday that Tennessee played at home was probably the most difficult day (laughs) because I'm no longer playing. Someone else is wearing the number I wore. Everyone's like, oh, hey, we're on a mission. They've already moved on. It's just natural order of things. But making that adjustment, it wasn't easy because that was part of my identity. I had to forge a new identity. Dallas Cowboys give you a shot. You talked about the cup of coffee. <clears throat> you get waved. Yep. But there's Quickly. a story there. Who did it? Who gave you that conversation? Tom Landry. Head coach back at a time, and I'm not going to say that all coaches don't do that now. I think some of them still handle all the cuts, and I admire them for doing it. And I actually understand some of those that do not, just because timing, all those other things. But when you got cut, the head coach cut you back then. And Tom Landry cut me and told me why he was cutting me. And he said, you know, we just don't think, you know, your performance was was satisfactory for us. We have to check this box. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go back to grad school. And he said, that's fantastic. And the funny part was after that conversation, I went out into the hallway and there was a coach who had been the friendliest coach you had ever known from the day I'd gotten there. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? He sees me come out of that office. He turned his back and walked away and never said a word to me. And I've never forgotten that. Mm. And the reason I haven't forgotten it is, ah, <laughs> now I understand what my value was to you, sir. I totally get it. I thought you were being a good guy. It was just strictly, hey, are you going to make the team or not? And once he turned his back and walked away, I've never forgotten it. And let's just say I've never really rooted for him. And by the way, his career has been less than mediocre, so more power to him. So I know that sounds bitter. But it's just the way you treat people, (laughs) it's got to count for something. But the last part of that story, Craig, years later, I'm working at the Olympic Committee, and I'm at an event, and the guest speaker, Tom Landry. And so I was like, unbelievable. I'm telling my my, my table the story of him cutting me. They're like, you ought to go over and talk to him. I was like, he's not going to remember me. And finally, I went over and said, hey, Coach Landry, how you doing? My name's Charles Davis. You're not going to remember me. But I'm one of the one of the many people that you cut on your way to the Hall of Fame. And he looked up and he smiled and he goes, probably one of my mistakes. And I leaned in real close and said, Coach, you may have made mistakes, but this wasn't one of them. But thank you. <laughs> In addition to hosting this podcast, Craig leads the CAN Advisory Group, focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals. Company consulting, empowering team and individual workshops, mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. CAN Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast 
to receive a special discount on any of the CAN Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about um, post-football because TV didn't just happen. And to me, this is the coolest part of your story is all the different little stops along the way. Now, I don't minimize them by saying little stops because these are some impressive things. Stanford, Associate AD. Now, what did you learn that you loved and what did you learn that made you go do something else after that? What I loved was interacting with the student athletes and seeing them grow and develop. What I also learned is that in an environment like that, in a place like Stanford with all those incredible achievers, there's often times where on their way to achieving, <laughs> they may have forgotten that there's some people along the way that you got to treat the right way. Mm-hmm. A little bit of that that I learned. There was also a part of me that realized, I just don't know if this office setting, coming here, doing this every day, it's really what I'm about. But I thought that was my path, frankly. My, my goal at the time was to be the first black uh, athletic director in the SEC. And that's where, that's where I was headed. And that's really what I had in mind. But then I was fortunate enough that I was able to change course a little bit. Yeah, you changed course. You ended up at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. I mean, you could have been, come on, you could have been on that path. There's no yep. doubt. Um, Malcolm Turner was just at Vanderbilt, right? We yes. know that story. Yes. Um, you could have been that guy. So so why did you steer off? Because that opportunity at the Olympic Training Center came at you. You just couldn't say no? Yeah, couldn't couldn't say no. The, the person who was the executive director of the training center at the uh, United States Olympic Committee, the man by the name of Harvey Schiller. Dr. Harvey Schiller. And he had hired me as an intern at the Southeastern Conference office when he was the commissioner there. And he called and said, hey, time for you to come come back and work for me again. And you know, Craig, I'm guessing we you have had mentors along the way, just like I've had and so many people who will hear this. There's always those special ones mm-hmm. that when they call, you answer, right? Sure. You know, the old story about Bear Bryant going back to Alabama. What was what was the answer? Well, mama called because that's where he played college football. That's why he went back to Bama from Texas A&M. For me, he called and said, time for you to come back and work for me. Yes, sir. <laughs> and I was there. And it still kept me on a path where if I wanted to be an athletic director, because running the Olympic Training Center was a mini athletic department in a sense, because mm-hmm. of all the sports you had, you had dorm life with all the athletes training there, you had the food services, the transportation, all the issues that are myriad with that, you get the idea. So it didn't knock me out at that point, but yeah, to work for him and to be mentored by him again, one of the best things that has ever happened to me because I learned a lot more than just how to run a training center from that man. And, and, and you know, when I talk with my fellow colleagues from back there, every day, there's, I think of him, and every day there's something that pops up that reminds me of something he taught me along the way. That's the kind of influence he had, and I was pretty fortunate to have it twice. Well, this is where <clears throat> the path gets crazy, and it turns into golf, which is how you and I hooked up. Um, yeah. You were running a PGA Tour event at Disney. Correct. First African-American tournament director, correct? Correct. So how in the world do you end up there? And then we're going to have a lot of fun getting into the, man, Charles Davis is on the golf channel, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I ended up there because um, while I worked for the Olympic Committee, Reggie Williams, the former Cincinnati Bengals linebacker, city of Cincinnati, town councilman, whole deal, later general manager in the World League of American Football. Remember that one, oh, Craig? Oh, yeah, I do. I and he was the GM of the New York, New Jersey Knights. Well, he ended up with a dream to build an athletic facility at Disney and bring in amateur sports and competitors and the whole deal. And you know how it works. If you bring in the young kids, here comes mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. And so Disney realizes a value and a profit. That was his dream. I met him when he came by the training center to look at some things. And then later on, he does start the thing at Disney, offers me a job. I take it. All right. And come down there and help open Disney's wide world of sports as it was known then. that would have been 1996. I think we opened 
I went there in 90. Yeah, I went there in 96. I think we opened in 97 or 98. So, so to be there and be on the ground floor of that and be a part of it. And my job was what I call the poor man's Willie Lomans, Craig. <laughs> I was out recruiting people and recruiting sports to come in and play at Disney. And the, am, the more amateur, the better, the younger, the better, because that brought more people with each group. And so it was sports fields and you've tried to bring in football and, and, you know, you have basketball courts and tennis all right on down the line. So Reggie was a huge influence on me as well. And, and my time there. And at that time, Disney ran a golf tournament, a PGA tour event. And the person who was running it ended up leaving to go work for the PGA tour. So the job was open. Well, when I was at Stanford, the golf course at Stanford came under my purview. And, and, and you know that golf course at Stanford. That thing at one point was one of the top 100 in the United States. Right. The whole deal. It's a big, big deal out there. That's where I learned golf, quote unquote, and learned golf operations. You know, when I left, there was 36 varieties of grass in every fairway. <laughs> and we, we changed the, changed the, the, the greens to Bermuda Tiffway 1419. And, you know, all these things I'd never known in my life. Well, this job comes open at Disney and I stroll in and say, Hey, I've got a little bit of golf experience. I'm interested in applying for it. Well, as you might imagine, Craig, they went after every person possible who had experience, didn't get them. And then they got jammed up and they said, well, if you want to try it. <laughs> and that's how I got the job. You're getting pretty far away from Stanford at that point. Way and your away path to the SEC now. is an AD. Okay. No doubt. And, and that's and how I getting the job and that's how it worked from there and then you and i met on another fluke because i think a guest fell off of a show and they asked me to come over last minute and appear on the show and that started my time at golf channel as well the original gray goose 19th hole yeah charles davis come on i mean how many people still talk to you about that by the way that's one of the most enjoyable shows i ever did at golf channel loved it loved the panel loved to be able to do the banter and have opinion and share and you know interview people carve people up all that sort of good fun all in good fun but i enjoyed yeah. that you were an it original was, it was a blast you remember how it was is me and steve dumick the big dog and god rest his soul we lost big dog last summer but he was also one of the original members of the big break. Mm -hmm. And you remember how big yep. a show that was for the golf channel back then. And he was kind of the dominant member there. He didn't win it, but he was the most memorable guy. But you asked a, a moment ago, you know, how many people re remember that more people remember me for that show. And I say this without exaggeration than for what I do currently, I will get more mentions about that show and being on golf channel. And the last time I appeared there was 2005 <laughs> than I do for my current work now, NFL on Fox, <laughs> NFL Network, <laughs> all of that. Very quickly, while I was in the middle of doing that, I was also calling college football games. Yep. And I went to, I was in Lubbock, Texas, and I was on the field in pregame. And one of the assistant coaches who I knew came up to me and he said, hey, man, what are you doing? Were you just coming to see the game? And I said, well, Brian, I'm calling the game. He goes, you're calling the game. <laughs> Does you do football? I said, yeah, Brian. He goes, oh, I thought you only did golf because of the Grey Goose 19th hole. So think about that. I still get people come, hey, golf channel guy. Hey, watch you every right. night. I'm like, watch me every night. I left Have there in 2011. <laughs> you know? And, and then the funny thing is when you tell them that, tell me I'm wrong here. When you tell them, well, I haven't been out since 2011. That's not true. I just saw you last week. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah. No, you can't get away from it. And you know something? Um, I take that as a huge compliment. You try Me to make too. an impact. You try to treat people right. You try to give the audience some value and some fun and some entertainment. I mean, it's just golf. But uh, it's a huge part of who I am. It's a huge part of who you were. And you talked about the big break. Um, let's talk about that because you got your big break. You were talking about the football. And then all of a sudden, NFL Network, Fox, the BCS yep. National Championship game. Take us there. Let, let's get to the BCS National Championship game because all of a sudden you're popping up there, right? Yeah. And you're on Fox, and this is Charles Davis doing <laughs> the game. I mean, we're talking yeah. the game in college Great. football. So I need to know about nerves, the pressure you felt, the stage, yep. all that. Crazy, absolutely crazy. And then in a quick nutshell, I got the call getting that opportunity because, you know, 
along the way, I'd been calling college football. You know, Turner, I did the games for Turner. You know, anytime anyone had a game, Fox Sports South, Sunshine Network, I was trying to work. But anyway, I get the call literally after a taping of the Grey Goose 19th hole. <laughs> I'm actually driving away and get the phone call asking me if I want to be part of the BCS and the team that Fox is putting together. And that first team for us was Chris Myers on the sideline, Tom, Tom Brenneman is, is the play-by-play guy, Barry Alvarez, the, the successful coach of the University of Wisconsin, the Hall of Fame coach, and me. And that's who we did our first one. And our first game was Boise State, Oklahoma. Yeah. With all the crazy plays that Boise State pulled off, the big upset, the whole The engagement. Deal. That was our first game together. And that was the first, one, first time I was able to kind of hit the national scene. Mm-hmm. And however people reviewed me and what have you, you know, some liked it, some thought I was horrible. The normal that you get, mostly tilting towards average to, 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 to bad. And a lot of that, Craig, as you and I both know, is if people don't know you before, they don't want the new people. They want to know where the ESPN people were. How come they're not doing it? Well, in the course of that game, you might remember at one point, Boise scores in overtime and then goes for two to win it right there rather than kick the extra point and continue to play. Yep. Well, I had foreshadowed it. And I said, hey, I'm going to tell you guys, I think Boise's at the end of their rope. If they score here, I think they go for two and try and end it now. And after the ball game, because it all came, it all happened. They went for two, ran the Statue of Liberty, won the ball game. I didn't predict that. I'm not that good, okay? (laughs) That's That's that's, Tony Romo. That's Tony Romo, right? (laughs) He would have gotten that. (laughs) But I did say before it happened, I said, I think they've slugged as long as they can. If they score, they go for two because they don't want to keep slugging with Oklahoma. Well, it happens. After the game, my boss, Ed Gorn, one of my bosses at Fox, he pulls me aside and he goes, when I heard you tell everyone that they would go for two and not and not not continue to play, I said, oh boy, Charles just jumped out of the plane. I hope the parachute comes out. <laughs> and what he was telling me was that took some you-know-whats. I like that you did it, but if it hadn't come out, come down that way, I don't know that I'm sitting here talking to you right now, Craig. You know, I took a gamble, but to me it was a calculated gamble because I saw what I was seeing out there. I saw a tired team who had given all they had and had made this, you know, incredible effort. And here was their chance to put this thing away. And they went ahead and did it. And I got fortunate there. And that's how the whole thing started for me. That was my first game with the BCS. I was able to do, you know, three BCS national championship games, a total of what, seven BCS games when you count the bowl games. And that was really what started to propel me towards where we're sitting here now. Charles Davis is our guest on this edition of Tracks to Success. Tracks to Success is brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. All right, let's go big picture. You're now one of the NFL's top game day personalities and voices, and yet the lights never seem to affect who you are as a person. That's one of the things I admire most about you. Um, The next bit of ego will actually be the first. So if I was to say, Charles, what's your style in 30 seconds, could you tell me what you believe your style is? Preparation, 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 history of the game, know the rules, try to be nice to everyone that's out there because they're pretty nice to you, (laughs) pretty nice to me for the most part. It just, you know, try and be be me, I guess. And, you know, I appreciate what you said about ego. I've got as much ego as anyone there is out there. I just know that me putting my ego first and foremost is not going to help me along the way. I don't have enough skins up on the wall to be able to pull that off. <laughs> You're the voice of the Madden game, too. <laughs> and that's first cool. First I ever got street cred from my kid. Yeah. First time. Yeah. Tell me about that. How'd that come about? And and you must get, I mean, like, that's the whole different generation, right? Forget the guy in the booth calling the, you know, number two playoff game in the NFL. He's on Madden. Well, you nailed it, too. You absolutely nailed it because that's what it was like in my household. My son is now 22. At the time I got the Madden gig, he would have been high school, like 16, 17. All right? So... <laughs> When I told him that that was happening, 
He rushed up, hugged me, tears in his eyes, called his boys. All of a sudden, the house is flooded with the fellas. These guys were locked in. And it was, as I tell everybody all the time, it's the first time I ever got street cred from my kid. He knew I had done the other things. He knew I was calling NFL games and done the BCS. That was fine. But mm -hmm. Madden, that's a whole different level. The people prior to me and my partner, my partner's name is Brandon Godden. And Brandon does Fox Sports games, Big Ten Network games. You know, he's, he's a riser. At one point, he was the voice of the Butler Bulldogs when they were going to the Final Four National Championship games in basketball. Mm -hmm. So I'm lucky to be connected with him. But we replaced Jim Nance and Phil Sims. Not because they didn't like their performance, but I think that they felt like it had run its course for them. Mm -hmm. Plus, they were going to a little bit of a new model that would require more time, more hours, all those things. And for guys who are kind of unknowns like me and Brandon, that fit us a lot better than it did for guys who are at the top of the food chain like a Jim Nance and a Phil Sims. And that's where we took over. And we're, we're fortunate enough that we're still doing it. And incredible. I think we look at each other at times in the studio and go, can you believe they still haven't fired us? This is kind of cool. And you're right. A lot of what we get nowadays is, wow, you're on Madden. That's pretty cool. And other things aren't quite as cool to people. So we will take that and run with it. Be part of the franchise that Coach Madden started and, and, and really put out there to where we are now. Hard to believe. Amazing what a great coach he was. And most oh. people, you know, He's forever. Like, no his, his legacy is his game. You know, yeah. it's the video game. It's crazy. Now, people yeah, don't. Look up, look, hey, uh, real quick. Anyone can hear us now and watch us. Look up Coach Madden's record as the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. And I think you'll be staggered when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Underappreciated. People don't realize the commitment that you have to put in. The workload. You know, you're, you're basically doing stuff for that show almost every week. Um, what's the recipe to balance in the career that you have? Ooh, great question. I think it's what we find a lot of people tell us, right? And it's like what you do in your career. You're organized, you're efficient, you're dedicated, you're prepared when it's time to go. In other words, what I mean by that is when you either walk into a studio or you are planning to talk with someone, you've done your homework ahead of time. You don't get on and fool around and, you know, hey, it's okay. Uh, no, you know what you're doing. And that, to me, that's the way to stay balanced because then you've opened up your opportunities to rest when there's time to rest because you've done your work. You've been on top of it the right way. And I think that's a big part of it. Sure, of course, your family, your friends, all that comes into it as well. But you can't enjoy your time with your family and friends, Craig, if you're not as organized as I know you are and efficient as I know you are. You, it doesn't just happen. You know, that's what I tell people all the time. Plus, you have to be willing to go the extra mile when people aren't around and don't see you. Mm -hmm. I know you well, and I know this to be true. If you have something that needs to be done and you have a commitment for your family, you're going to take care of the commitment for the family first. But when that commitment is over, and you have a flight the next morning at 6 a.m., yet you still need to knock out three things, those will get knocked out before you get on the flight the next day. But you don't go around telling people about it. You don't go. You don't get on the plane and go, hey, you wouldn't believe the night I had. I had to do four things. No, you just do them because mm -hmm. it's the job. It's the way to be successful. It's the way to get things done. And I feel like I'm, I'm pretty similar to that with, as you are. We're going to get it done. We're not going to, you know <laughs> – for, forego our, our duties as, as fathers, as, 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 you know, as people who, who have the, you know, you got to spend the time with the kids and, and you want to, mm -hmm. you know, friends who count on you, all of that. But those other hours that people don't see, I'm going to get the job done the way you're going to get the job done, but we're not doing it to tell people that we're doing it. It just has to be done that way. Don't tell people what you're going to do. Do it. Yeah, allow do it. the work to speak for itself. I think that's one of the We've all hung things. out with people who've told us what they're going to do. And a lot of times it doesn't get done. So why am I going to tell you all this? You're going to know whether I got it done because there's a deadline for everything. And there's a performance curve. Yeah. Did I do it well? Did I do it to the satisfaction of the people watching who are paying our checks? That's what, that's what matters more than anything. And then you and I both know, none of them are asking us how we, how we got there. They just want to know when we get there, did we do it well? 
Now, you and I have done some give back together on college campuses, speaking to student athletes and communication leaders. We both give some time with broadcast students, which to me is so much fun at various schools, including the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting and a few others here in Orlando. But tell me about your definition. What is your definition of give back and legacy? Availability, time, interest, it's one thing to be on the end of the phone when that, that youngster calls you, that young man or that young woman calls you and they're interested in doing what we do or how did we get there. If they are interested, and you can always tell, can't you, Craig, if they're, if they're just knocking something off that they have to do or if they truly have a passion for it, I'm willing to give whatever I can give to you. Because one thing I've discovered in my life, the most successful I've been has been when I've shared when I've helped even people in kind of competition with me, because I went through a time frame of, hey, I got to protect myself here. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I can't, you know, let competition be a part of it. Hey, I got to take care of me. I never did that well. But what I have found is people that I'm, I'm, I'm working with and, and people who are interested, and even if we're kind of competing for the same, you know, light, so to speak, I'm better off helping them when they ask for help or guiding them if they ask for guidance. And that's when I've been at my best. And that's when the better things have happened for me. And I know it sounds almost too good, right? It's almost saccharine dripping, but it's true. When I've tried to hoard things, it hasn't gone quite as well for me. And I think there's a lesson in there for me that, hey, that's just how it's going to be. And if you're good enough, you'll get it. And if you're not, if they like someone else, they're going to like someone else. But that's kind of the way it's been for me. But my give back has always been, if you're interested, here I am to try and help you. Yeah, it's a great definition of success is helping others to achieve something that maybe they think they can't achieve on their own or other people have told them they can't achieve. And, and if you're there to help become that mentor, give back. A lot of people don't like to see others achieve success. I'm completely the opposite. I hope everybody that I've ever worked with reaches the top of the tree, the top of the mountain, whatever they want. And and whether they want the same for me or the people that I'm closest to, I can't control that. So I don't I don't spend too much time worrying about it. That's a great point. Schadenfreude, right? Isn't that the word, right? When you take pleasure in other people's misfortunes or or their struggles. Look, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm the greatest saint that's ever walked the face of the earth. I admitted it a couple seconds ago. Mm-hmm. I've been through that time frame where I tried to have, you know, where I wanted to make sure I was taken care of. Who cares about anyone else? So there was some schadenfreude in there. And there's times when you still have to fight it. Why well, should let me speak for myself? I still have to fight it where you're like, oh, man, how come they get? Well, what about me? But most of the time, I'm able to tamp that down pretty quickly. And realize if I just do what I'm supposed to do, it's going to work out. And I hope that I've helped people along the way because I darn sure got help along the way. Yeah, we all did. A couple of things before I let you go, Charles. Um, You've mentioned this on more than one occasion in our time together here. Uh, You talked about wanting to be the first African-American AD in the SEC. That's already happened, okay? Somebody else. Mr. David Williams, Vanderbilt University, and then after that, Damon Evans at Georgia. There you go. Uh, Are you a guy who wants to make that type of impact regarding race? In other words, be that for others who are African-American that want to achieve similar success to what you've done. Is that, is that important to you? It is. And, but it's not important in a way of we're going to trumpet it from the, from the, from the rooftops. People are going to discover it along the way. And I hope that that impact will help others and people will see that. I remember a long time ago when when I was the I was the you know as you mentioned the first African American tournament director in PGA Tour history. Well, at the Disney tournament the second year, Tiger Woods won it. So now we're going to have real history here, right? <laughs> African American tournament director handing the check to an African American winner. I don't think that's happened before. This is unbelievable, right? And I was mentioning it to a sports writer who happened to be African-American. I said, wow, that's pretty cool, huh? And he said, yeah. He said, we're going to record it and report it, and then we'll let others discover it. And I've never forgotten that. It wasn't, okay, let's go out there and jump out there and get in everyone's face. And can you believe this? It's unbelievable. His low-key approach to it 
at first kind of set me back, Craig. It's like, why? This should be a big deal. But over time, I've come to realize I kind of like that. Like, yeah, it's important. That way people can see that they can achieve things that maybe in fields they didn't expect to achieve, you've got opportunity. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be something that I'm, you know, in everyone's face each and every day. The record's there. It shows that it can be done. And I take a lot of pride in that. So I'm guessing then that you're not a huge fan of the Rooney rule. The Rooney rule has so has a lot of warts to it. I like why it came about and I like the heart that it came from, because if you know the Rooney family and I know them enough, mm-hmm. not that they would ever like, you know, like I'm, we're not talking every day, but I like a lot of what they stand for and they walk the walk because they helped initiate the Rooney rule. And then they hired Mike Tomlin who wasn't close to being at the top of their, you know, hiring list. He got an interview because of the Rooney rule blew them away. And the thing about the Rooney rule, Craig, for me is if that person walks in the door and he got the interview because of the Rooney rule, he absolutely does what Mike Tomlin does and blows you away. Are you still going to consider him or did you, are you still just checking the box and saying, well, I did the Rooney rule. I don't have to because the Rooney rule can't legislate heart. They can't legislate what, what people really feel. And that's why I think that we're going to have to continue to look at it and understand what it's all about because 32 people own NFL teams. That's a whole lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. Do we tell people every day how to spend their money? Answer is no. So at the end of the day, I would love to see more representation. But can we, by any measure, tell those people how they're going to spend their money and run their run their franchises? Probably not. But the awareness is there. I think the people who are taking it seriously, we've seen them on record. We've seen some advancements along the way. Not what I would expect to see. But at the same time, I think it's a tough one to legislate saying you're going to hire someone. Although in a lot of ways, I think a lot of people have missed the boat on, on hiring people. I hope that makes sense. What's your next? Do you have it? You're at the top of your profession right now as a broadcaster. Yeah. Yeah. My, my next is continue to do a good job in this. And I always have a plan B. I write down my list of goals every year. I, do, I try and do it New Year's Eve each, each and every year to start a, fre- a fresh year. And most of the time I include a plan B. Lately, my plan B has been maybe going into the personnel side of the NFL, maybe trying to be a general manager one day. I've watched some colleagues, you know, we've seen it out of our, our out of our ranks. You remember Rick George? Oh yeah. But he was running oh, yeah. Rick, Rick, Rick came in what he ran New Orleans first and then he ran the AT&T, correct? In the golf on the, on the tour. Mm-hmm. And Rick, Continued to advance. Get up is was a was a was a high-ranking member of the PGA Tour administration. He's now the athletic director of the University of Colorado. Colorado. To watch Rick go through the ranks and, and achieve what I guess became his ultimate goal, to watch a John Lynch go from broadcasting and I replaced him in the booth, right to being a GM because of his playing career and his smarts, and get a team to the Super Bowl in three years. Mother colleague Mike Mayock who was never a GM, but trained like he was going to be a GM. If you saw Mike at Pro Days, Craig, you could see he was a pure scout and -hmm. worked his way through the ranks. So when he got the job, which was a surprise to most people with the Raiders as the GM, the scouts applauded because Mike trained like they did. To them, it was like one of theirs coming out of there. That might be the next for me. I definitely have an interest in that. This podcast is called Tracks to Success. Everybody's track is different. There is no straight line. I tell people that all the time. I've had my career pivots. You've had yours. You could have gone a lot of different ways. So I'm asking you here and now, if you could identify one thing that has gotten you to where you are, right? Or given you those opportunities to make decisions to get to where you are, what's the thing about Charles Davis that stands out? I would say persistence and belief. Those are the two, I'm gonna boil it down to two words. Persistence in, as you mentioned, the pivots, which is, a, which is a great word for a lot of times for us, meaning either a failure 
or a block <laughs> or a challenge, all of those things, or whatever word you want to use, that forced us to either do it differently or find a way around it or maybe make a different decision. So persistence for me is once I got into this broadcasting, I wanted to try and get to the top. Belief in my abilities and my ability to work hard, et cetera. And I would do what was ever what, what it was going to take, you know, in the bounds of doing it the right way. And I still believe that. I still believe that persistence can wear things down in other places and get you where you want and get you an opportunity. And then the belief that you're good enough to get it done, then you'll hit it out of the park when you get a chance. So I'm just trying to give you two words on it there, but that's really what it's been for me and what I think it'll continue to be. And I want everybody to understand this. It's never going to be easy. And it's never going to be as simple as, oh, they told me, no, I'll just keep going. There's times you retreat to your bedroom and pull the, pull the covers up over your head, okay, and blot out all the light. But you can't stay down for long. My dad calls it bottoming out. Hit the bottom, come on back up, and let's go at it again. And I feel like that's kind of my personality because I'll take some hits, and they will hurt. But I feel like I can get back up off the canvas and start slugging again. You do a fantastic job. You just gave us two words. I'll give you one star. Might not have been the All-America, but you're an All-America person and you're an All-America broadcaster. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate our friendship and the time that we've spent. Anybody listening to this, um, they've taken a lot from just hearing your words. So I appreciate your time, buddy. Yeah, I appreciate yours and continued success to you. And thank you for the friendship, the guidance, and being able to watch you do things. And, and I've said it earlier there are a lot of similarities in how we go about doing things, even though we've never discussed that. But it comes out when you look at our careers, when you look at how we've gotten different places. And I do know in, when, when it's quiet and people aren't around and it's two, three in the morning and you're still grinding, I'm doing the same thing because we both have goals and things we want to achieve. So I thank you for this time, Craig. I appreciate it. In our conversation, Charles shared stories about the many pivots he's taken to finding his true calling, which leads me to my one last thing. If you want to be an influencer, don't allow yourself to get stuck with a one-track mind or path. It doesn't always work that way. The career ladder means chasing opportunity and not chasing money. At each career landing spot, there's something to be gained and something you can add to your toolbox that makes you an attractive addition to someone else. One role might be in sales and the next in marketing and the next in leadership. But at the end of the day, those at the top never lose sight of their roots and can look back on something they learned in a prior job that makes them better and more relatable in their current role. So spread your wings. See what can be gained with every opportunity that might come your way. I hope these thoughts and this interview helps put you on the track to success. If you have a guest you think belongs on Tracks to Success, share it on our Twitter site, at Tracks to Success. We can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter it's at Tracks to Success.